Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Just plain old Cory Nocturne. No special sauce today. Wow, boring Cory. On, <laughs> on today's episode, uh, it is the start of a new quarter, which means it's time to chat about the last quarter. Uh, we are going to dive into our quarter one security report from the WatchGuard Threat Lab and go over some of the trends and stats and takeaways uh, from the data that we gathered from WatchGuard customer appliances deployed across the world. Before that, though, we'll start with a moment of mourning for a unfortunate loss for the security industry. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and slowly walk on in with our next No, day. this is New Orleans. Let's celebrate with trumpets. Celebrate the passing of life, man. Sure, we could do that too. I'm sure that he would appreciate that, actually. I have a feeling he would like a New Orleans uh, uh, wake. Let's blow off some fireworks as we go on in. <laughs> While Katy Perry's firework is playing. <laughs> exactly. So I guess we have to start this week with some... Uh, I guess big news related to security, some sad news, depending on how you view the individual, but still some, I don't know, he is a human being. So it's sad that he is. Yeah, bad. I think it's sad news, regardless of what you think about him. Yeah. But, Any uh, lost life is a, is a tragic waste. Correct. And as we're hinting at, uh, just last week, we found out that we have lost the life of security expert. I would guess you would label him John McAfee, the security pioneer, founded McAfee Antivirus, which was one of the first, if not the first, antivirus vendor who way back in the day accounted for a massive part of the market share for antivirus software before being sold off to, I believe it was Intel, if I'm correct. Um, I feel like it might have been divested since then, but Intel definitely yeah. owned them for a while and might might still own them. I was always waiting for them to put some sort of antivirus in a chip. Yeah. Uh, since selling off his his baby, though, he became this, I don't know, enigmatic figure in the world of security. One where, like, I argue is obviously a genius. He is insanely intelligent, a very good programmer, as is true by his background of working at Lockheed and NASA and then creating an antivirus company, one of the first ones, but not without his controversies. Uh, like, he, he had the, uh, the incident in... In Belize, where he allegedly murdered his neighbor after his neighbor allegedly murdered some of his dogs. Uh, he's been on the run from various authorities across the world through much of the last decade or so. And his passing was unfortunately as he was in a jail cell in Spain, uh, awaiting extradition to the United States for tax evasion uh, issues, re mostly relating to cryptocurrency sales, I believe. Yeah, uh, sales that he didn't pay tax on. Yep, he was a, a staunch libertarian and firmly believed he should not be paying any taxes whatsoever is what he lived by. So this was, you can say in hindsight, always bound to catch up with him, tax evasion charges from the states, but still pretty sad. Like I would, I, I remember my favorite John McAfee story was, this was probably five DEF cons ago now, um, where I was just happened to be hanging out in the contest hall with one of my good friends. Uh, when all of a sudden John McAfee walks in with like a dozen and a half security guards surrounding him, like his personal was security. This is probably DEF CON. Maybe it was. I, I know he was at DEF CON at, I think, 24, the 2014 one. I think it was, was DEF CON 22 is the one that he was at. I don't remember what year that was, though. But 
Uh, he may have been in others. I think this one, he was supposed to be in the Sky Talks track, which is basically a paid add-on to DEF CON where no recording devices are allowed. They talk about even more interesting security-related issues and vulnerability disclosures and stuff. But for whatever reason, he decided instead to give his talk in the contest hall and basically went over, took over stage, got a microphone, and basically spent an hour talking about how insane the last 30 years of his life had been. It was like everything he walked through, the stories about his time in Belize with experimenting with homemade pharmaceuticals to the incident with his neighbor, him apparently having to hide in a dumpster when uh, government, uh, corrupt government mobsters came to uh, try and off him after failing to pay a $5 million bribe, as he claimed, him getting uh, uh, smuggled out of Venezuela and into, I think it was Guatemala, or not uh, Venezuela, Belize, and into Guatemala. And then basically hopping around the world in his constant fear of being picked up by some government somewhere. Uh, One of the biggest things from it was his bodyguards were intense. Like there were some people that I guess if they looked too suspicious, they would walk up to them with their cell phone, the bodyguards, and just start filming that suspicious person right there, like right in their face in front of them. It was such a weird, surreal experience. And my takeaway from it was, man, this guy's had a pretty dang crazy life but yeah he he was an interesting character he definitely i i I, before that talk i knew he had a kind of crazy life because i think he is very open about his drug use and beliefs i would characterize him as very eccentric and while sometimes i didn't agree with him and thought he was a little nuts he was always fun to listen to never disappointed you as far as just being interesting I think everyone remembers his video on how to uninstall McAfee <laughs> software. Yep. By the way, the one thing you didn't know, we're obviously sad, you know, whether you love him or hate him, whether you think he should be prosecuted for his crimes, which I do think you do need to, to, to be accountable for crimes if they are crimes. Uh, there was some conspiracy around this too now. Uh he did some tweets, I think, uh, a while back, basically saying that uh, uh, in reference to Epstein's death in a jail cell, allegedly by suicide, he basically claimed, if I'm ever dead in a jail cell by suicide, it wasn't me. And I think he even got some sort of tattoo about that. Yep, he and absolutely to, did. Yeah. And to, to even add some craziness to and more conspiracy, the people that probably don't even need more conspiracy I think one of the last tweets just an hour or so before these reports was a big Q in Twitter. Uh, and while it wasn't anything more than a Q, I'm sure that that people in the USA know that that could refer to certain things. So it's just really un- unusual. It is. And know? I don't want to like speculate about someone's death. But at the same time, John McAfee was a living conspiracy theory. And it just makes sense that if you were to go... He would make sure that there was something interesting about it when he went. Uh, and I would say a known troll to the U.S. Yes. government. I mean, he took every opportunity he he could to, I won't cause a beep this episode, but to basically lift a middle finger, whatever that means, to the U.S. government. So on one hand, who knows? This could be totally unrelated. Uh, you know, I, but it, it, it's, you know, it, it's interesting to see all of this happening. And to some extent, his eccentricity and habits of doing unusual things, you know, definitely makes you wonder. 
Yep. Still, I mean, he was a massive part of security and security history, so it is sad to see him go. And, and yeah, I don't know what I'm allowed to, to wish he's doing in the afterlife now, considering what he did in his normal life. It's probably not safe <laughs> to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> Hopefully in the afterlife, he doesn't have to worry about this world at all. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, moving on from that, uh, this episode comes right after the release of one of WatchGuard Threat Lab's quarterly internet security reports, which means that in this episode, we're going to dive through some of the main findings and takeaways and stats and information um, from this latest security report. And of course, end with defensive tips that you can take based off of the current threat landscape uh, as we've defined. So I guess maybe we should start with like what the security report is, why exactly we do it. Corey, you want to take that one? Yeah, yeah, sure. So really the security report, the internet security report is, it started as a way to give you quantifiable, actual, you know, not just anecdotal, not just based on outside stuff, but quantifiable information about what the threat landscape, you know, was for the past few quarters and hopefully over years to come. And it was based mostly on our product data. We sell a number of different products, but when we started this report, it was largely based on our network security product called the Firebox. And while you know we actually are very pro-user privacy, if you opt in, we can get a little bit of information about the number of the different types of malware instances, uh, network attacks, which are essentially IPS hits, intrusion prevention service, uh, malicious domains you're going to. So doesn't really include any information about your network, but basically it shows all the stuff that's being detected around the world by our products out there. And based on that information, we can kind of get an understanding, uh, arm's length understanding of what bad guys are doing. You know, if if certain types of malware start showing up in our top list because they're what's being blocked most often out there, gives us a good understanding of what type of attacks. You know, maybe it's a fileless threat, maybe they're focused on Word document or, or document-based malware. So just using that quantifiable data, which we call the Firebox feed for our network products, you know, we, we can show what bad guys are doing around the internet, draw all kinds of conclusions. Besides that, we started opening up to other products when we can. Uh, our team, Mark's team, the Threat Labs, does a whole lot of other research and pays attention to stories uh, going on around the industry and, and dives deeper technically in some of the attacks out there. So the report's mostly just designed to show you what's happening in the threat landscape really in order to prepare you to to change your defenses or to adjust your defenses with the evolution of the threats. You know, as we see trends change, we give you an idea of what they are and what kind of defenses you can add or adjust uh, to make sure that you don't, you know, don't succumb to them. Yep, that's a pretty great explanation. So like you said, uh, the bulk of it comes from data from what we call the Firebox feed. Um, and if you are a WatchGuard administrator, partner, customer, whatever, uh, we do highly recommend you enable this uh, send device feedback to WatchGuard because not only does it help product management know what features are being used so they can help tailor where we should focus our engineering efforts, it provides us with this actual real threat intelligence of what is being exploited and attacked out there in the wild, which is incredibly useful for when it comes time to figuring out what the bad guys are doing and how to defend against it. Um, so... Without further ado, let's go ahead and start out with the Firebox feed and specifically the malware section of the report, where we talk about threats that were detected by our three anti-malware engines. 
um, starting with gateway antivirus, which is our traditional signature-based and heuristic-based anti-malware engine that's really good at quickly catching just known good malware out there. Um, but as with most traditional signature-based anti-malware services, like it's not perfect. Uh, evasive threats can get past it, which is why there's two additional layers behind that, one being intelligent AV, so machine learning-based um, detections to, again, quickly run it through a model and give a thumbs up or thumbs down, and then APT Blocker with its cloud sandbox-based detection that gives a definitive behavioral analysis of, is this good, is this bad? By the way, I, I just want to give a, we talk about that, you, you've probably heard of if you listen to this a lot of quarters, us talk about this before, but in our report, we've gotten to the point of talking about evasive, sophisticated threats as the type that get past signatures. But I, I thought it'd be interesting to explain that a little more because sometimes these evasive threats aren't necessarily overly sophisticated. Uh, so to give you an idea, there's all kinds of ways malware can evade detection. But one of the most common and which is not really sophisticated in my opinion nowadays is something called packing encrypting. It's, you know, they're not doing tricks on your local endpoints to turn off or or to somehow bypass your, your local security software. Rather, they're just changing the binary profile of an executable so it doesn't look the same anymore. And, and packing is doing that by kind of... Uh, you know, packing's like compression, right? One of the ways you can take a file and make it look different is simply compressing it. That makes it smaller, but that, that also actually changes the, the ones and the zeros of the file. So there's all kinds of ways to pack a file. Some are just compression techniques, but some is just different ways to encode executables. Crypting is more about somehow creating a encrypted executable, and that's much more complex. You know, an executable has to be a program that follows a, a portable executable. The Windows type of executable has to be ver a very exact format file in order for it to execute and do things. But there are ways to use stubs and set up a, a way that you're actually decrypting parts of the executable as it's running. So nowadays, packing encrypting, while they actually are pretty sophisticated to be very smart about how to do that, the reason it's not sophisticated nowadays is there's a whole underground market that sells push-button packers encryptors. So it's very trivial for even a totally non-tech-savvy attacker to take a Trojan, the same Trojan, it, the Trojan itself never changes. What runs on your computer once it's actually unpacked and running is exactly the same. But they could make a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand different files, files that have a different binary footprint, a, a different hash, uh, that all are actually the same Trojan. So something as simple as that is an evasion that gets past signature-based detection. Because obviously a lot of signature-based detection is looking for a very exact a pattern in a file. And if I can jumble it up in a new way, I might get past that pattern. I'm simplifying it a little. But do you know, that's to me, I feel like the, the mass majority of zero-day malware, the reason the number is going up that we'll start talking about later is probably because of Packers encryptors. But there are all kinds of other ways to evade signature-based protection too. That's just one of them. But anyways, when we say evasive, it could be a number of different things, but just think of it as things like packing encrypting, uh, trying to disable the signature-based software, 
just running in a different way to get past signatures like fileless malware. There are a lot of different ways, a lot of different things that qualify as evasive, but we kind of generalize it all together. And real quick on that, like you might ask, okay, so with cryptors, why can't I just, you know, detect and block that stub that decrypts it all? And the reason is like, yes, you absolutely could. It's probably pretty easy for them to detect that. But these authors of these cryptors and applications developed them in a way that uh, they make it really hard to do that without a lot of false positives. And yeah, you could create an AV software that blocks every single program on your computer and stops your users from doing anything at all, even legitimate. But obviously, that is not a great way of doing security. Yeah. And it's a cat, cat and mouse game. You can also, they, there are signatures that try to catch a certain type of packer. You know, what they're really looking for is a packer profile, not the malware. But but as you suggest, Mark, it's kind of a cat and mouse game. And and they're they're pretty good at it. And and what it's come down to is it's not that you can't write a signature for these things. It's that the massive volume of newly packed, newly, you know, fresh malware that's really the same malware adjusted in a certain way. It's just such a huge volume that people that are writing the signatures or even some of the automated processes that get you halfway there can't keep up. And that's exactly. really why you need those more proactive techniques that Mark was talking about, like, so, like machine learning and or behavioral. Yep. So we've kind of hinted that this quarter, those numbers were pretty big when it came to evasive malware. Uh, if we just look at the high level stats, which, you know, they don't always turn out to be super interesting but this quarter i will say they were really interesting for a few different reasons uh, when we look at that uh the detections by gateway antivirus so the signature based detection tool that comes with basic security on WatchGuard fireboxes uh the number was right around eight and a half million detections uh which was actually a pretty substantial decrease quarter over quarter malware has been trending down on the whole for the last like, year or so mostly because of not a lot of network traffic traversing the perimeter that historically would traverse the perimeter so these signature based detections were down but then when we pivot and look at the advanced uh detections by apt blocker so the ones caught by the signature based or the uh, not some by iav yep the behavioral uh, based the sandbox exactly. APT blocker accounted for 8.4 billion uh, detections, which is a 16% increase and now basically neck and neck with the traditional signature based one, which like, I mean, there's a few different ways to look at this. Like it's just raw volume. So it doesn't account for different models of fireboxes. It doesn't account for different amounts of licensing that WatchGuard customers might have where APT blocker does require total security or a standalone APT blocker license, which it's more money, so it's less utilized than the other one. Even then, though, it is coming neck and neck with traditional-based anti-malware now. Well, I, I think this is kind of what you meant, but to be very clear, the gateway antivirus number we just gave you includes all boxes, even if they don't have APT blocker. So when we get what we're going to share in a second, a zero day number, when we measure that number, we're only looking at the gateway antivirus compared to the other two on boxes that have APT blocker. Because if it doesn't have APT blocker, it's, it's, it can't be part of the comparison because it doesn't, you know, we don't know for sure if something else caught it. So not only is it neck and neck with G, like it's neck and neck with GAV across all the user base, even though the boxes with APT blocker are just a portion of that user base. So in, if you're okay with me sharing the zero day number, that's why the zero day number this 
this quarter reached an or Q1 reached an all-time high of 74%. So if you look at the GAV, the, the gateway, the signature hits just on boxes that were APT blocker, it wasn't neck and neck. It was, you know, you know, it, it was more than it is twice as much essentially, right? Or three times as much. Only 25% GAV or 26% to be exact, and 74% zero day. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts just how easy it is these days to craft a malware payload that can evade signature-based detections or even heuristic-based detections. Because like Corey said, like it's commoditized at this point. You don't even have to go on the dark web. You can just go on some underground hacking forum and get a copy. You can go to GitHub and start using Amber, which is a popular uh, crypter. And just with any of those free tools, shoot, you can what's make the one? Your... Metasploit even has. Uh, what can I think of? Shikata Ganai, and there's a new one that's another one that started. Veil Evasion, I believe. Veil, yeah. So there's, you know, and by the way, those are actually probably easily detectable, but they're they're everywhere now. You can find them all over the place. Exactly. So, like, big takeaway from just those raw stats are that evasive malware is continuing to go up and basically skyrocketing at this point. And if you're just relying on traditional anti-malware services you're missing a huge chunk of threats that are out there and by the way this has been a trend in our isr report for a while so we kind of stopped focusing too much on zero day malware and tried to i mean we still gave the the trend every quarter but we were trying to find other big highlights because this has been happening for a long time but the 75 percent was or 74 technically was still a surprise to me I mean, I, I feel like it had plateaued. By the way, it started when we first started this report years ago, probably four years ago now, I think, three years, something like that. It was only at 30%. But over time, it has been growing. And I think it really plateaued around 47 to 50. There's been occasionally at times that it's jumped up to just at the 60s. But this 74% is an all-time high. So despite this being kind of a usual message, it was much more than even I expected this quarter. Uh, now, one of the other stats we track each quarter is the percentage of malware arriving over a TLS encrypted connection. So this means malware coming in over HTTPS instead of just HTTP. And again, we get this based off of appliances that have HTTPS decryption enabled, uh, which is still only a small subset of the overall deployments of these security appliances out there. I think we said it was about 20%. This yep. quarter, that's, I think that's somewhere what right the around author, there. Author of this section mentions. Um, so for those appliances that had HTTPS decryption enabled, forty-four uh, percent of the malware they saw arrived over an encrypted connection. Which, if you then extrapolate that to the whole customer base, you're basically saying forty-four percent of malware out there uses some form of encryption uh, for the actual transfer of it. So if you're not inspecting your traffic, you're just straight up missing that much malware at your perimeter. Now, if you've deployed your security defenses well, you've got other layers like endpoint protection and endpoint detection response. But even then, you're relying on just one layer then. You're relying on your endpoint being the last chance of catching these threats instead of having that additional layer at the perimeter. One interesting thing I can't I can't tell is this number has been going up, but this quarter, I, I think it went down once before, but do know that this is the 44%, that's still a lot to me in my opinion. So really, we think you should be analyzing uh, HTTPS traffic too and using those features in our product or any product you use. It takes a little more work for certificates, of course, but it's worth it. 
but I, I I can't I don't really know why it dropped a little Discord. I think it has maybe more to do with the fluctuation with customers turning opting in and out or doing a new update or changing the setting. But I, I would say the overall trend, if if you take the trend line over a year, or you know predicted forecast over the next few years, we do expect this to continue going up. The fact that it dropped ten points was a little bit of a surprise to me. And it's largely because like things like Let's Encrypt make it easy for anyone, whether you're good or bad, to encrypt a web server and then deploy malware from that web server. And like the internet as a whole is moving towards uh, encryption. Uh, most of the major browsers now default to HTTPS instead of HTTP, as we've talked about in this podcast uh, probably a few months ago now. Um, and it makes sense. Like it's good for privacy, good for security, but it does leave a blind spot then if you're not doing decryption at your corporate room. What, what other context I wanted to, before we move off malware, if that's what you're doing, nope. I, I think you did already say that, or maybe you didn't, but by volume, malware was down 16%. And if we're just going to that by volume story, that kind of matches what we've been talking about all during 2020. If you've listened to us before, both network attacks and malware have been going up consistently before the pandemic. Uh, when the pandemic hit, we saw network attacks continue to increase because servers are still in the office and cloud, but we saw malware going down at the network. But when we look at endpoint detection, it's catching a lot of stuff. So that that's consistent with our, the pandemic story in that people have obviously moved to remote work at home, they don't have the network perimeter, and malware follows the user. So that is why we expect malware to be down this quarter too. We don't actually expect malware to return a little bit more to possibly increasing. Uh, I, I think Q3, I think in the US, net Q3, not Q2, you're, start, you're going to start to see more people go to the office. Uh, but for the world, it may still be a little longer. So really, it may not normalize completely till 2020. But the point I actually wanted to make is the total volume of malware decreasing is actually a little deceiving. Malware has actually been going up this quarter per device. So the one thing we, we don't love to talk about because we don't know exactly why, but a significant, we, we get this data from Firebox's reporting in. I think last quarter there's something like uh, 45,000. This quarter there was 37,000. We saw a big decrease in Firebox's reporting in. So while the volume was down, when you look at it per firebox, comparing how many were reporting this quarter compared to last, it's actually up in malware detected per firebox. So it, you know, it, so the, some of that volume decrease is actually the fireboxes that maybe got an update and haven't opted back in yet. So I do find it a little interesting that malware might actually be starting to tick up already. I wasn't expecting a real uptick until Q4, and, and then of course 2020. 2022 or 2022 uh, uh, actually i never mind there's some years that might be good but this the 2020 yeah. is not a year i want to nor 2019 etc prefer to never see that year ever again yeah yeah um but anyway so moving on from like the high level stats let's look at a few like the specific malware threats that we saw over the quarter um so we break it into a few different views that you'll see in the report if you check it out yourself one of the things we look at is just the top threats by volume. So without any weighting or anything, what malware uh, had the most number of detections across the entire reporting base? Um, and in that, like some of the interesting trends I saw, the top four were all code injectors. 
So generic signatures catching dropper files. That's something we've seen historically, but not necessarily the first four detections period in the top 10 by volume list. Then it makes sense. We do see a lot of droppers at the perimeter. That's where we catch them, which means we inevitably don't see the resulting payload or additional stages in that malware infection. Like a, a family named ransomware. Usually at the network level, we've caught in the stager before it downloads the actual payload of the ransomware at the end. Yeah, exactly. Um, there were actually three new threats in the top 10. Uh, there was a Trojan uh, named Ursu uh, that showed up in the top 10. There was a malicious iframe uh, injector that we've talked about in previous reports, similar threats to that one. Um, but there was another one coming at number nine, actually. Uh, which is a signature or I guess detection family called xml.jsloader, um, where it showed up both in the top 10 by volume, but also the top five by encrypted malware. It was number one in that one. And I think it's largely because it's probably delivered over web uh, connections to potential applications that use some form of XML parsing. Uh, because when we looked into this threat, it's basically it exploits XML external entities vulnerabilities where uh, in XML as a data format, you generally have you know strings, lists, things like that, different types of text-based data that you're loading into an application, whether it be for a configuration or data transfer or uh, pushing a command or whatever. But XML as a protocol supports something called external entities, where you can define a basically a variable that gets loaded from somewhere else. And depending on how the parser handles that, it means that they could try and load this variable that's, oh, actually a file download somewhere. Or in this case, there was a variable that contained different types of script, like JavaScript, JScript, PowerShell, whatever, where if the parser wasn't built to deny that. Or specifically, would, maybe some JavaScript that launched a command that went yeah, to PowerShell. <laughs> it would uh, execute that and then carry out whatever the command was in that case. Um, pretty dangerous, like XML external entities as a vulnerability are in the OWASP top 10 and have been for quite some time uh, because it can be difficult. Like it is a part of the protocol that is supported by XML, but it can cause a heck of a lot of issues depending on your parser handles it and how they specifically deny it for security reasons. Um, so one of our analysts, Trevor, did a really good job writing up about a few uh, a specific threat that we caught. Uh, from this family, definitely check it out in the report. He walks through with examples of exactly how this one works. Yeah, and just so you, there's a lot of typical stuff, but the, even when he gets the PowerShell, it uses obfuscation. You know, it, it, it's not perfect. It's pretty easy base64 obfuscation, but as usual, there, there are things that can detect this type of malicious script, but the obfuscation sometimes bypasses those controls. Luckily, it didn't bypass ours. And you can see all the little PowerShell tricks, you know. There are you do have the ability to have PowerShell group policy and try to somewhat put a policy and limit what non-privileged users can do with PowerShell, but they they know all the tricks to make it run in a non-interactive mode, try to skip the group policy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So Lots of neat stuff in the details for sure. Yep. Uh, the other neat, neat if you're an attacker, anyways. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, one of the other threats we highlighted from this is the top encrypted malware in this case uh, was a particular. It was actually an attachment to emails that dropped something called Zmutzi. Uh, just by saying that name, I know we have talked about it previously in one form or another because I seem to remember Corey's fun, not necessarily pronunciations, but cantations of how to say it. <laughs> 
Um, the particular one we highlighted, though, came in as an email attachment claiming to be a shipping notification, which is like, I don't know, run of the mill phishing at that point. It seems like that's pretty low effort to use a shipping notification, but I guess they keep doing it because it keeps working. Um, in this particular Blame case, it on though, Amazon, man. Yeah. I mean, Amazon we all... means that people always have packages. So shipping, there's always a shipping notice someone's considering. Yep. Uh, this one came in as an attachment, though, that looked like a PDF inside of a zip file. So it's a zip file attachment. If you unpack it, you get something that looks like a zip file. It's got a zip file icon. It looks like it or not zip file PDF icon. It looks like it ends in PDF for the file attachment, but they're actually using tricks and taking advantage of the fact that Windows by default hides the um, the file. Oh, oh, man, I am having a massive brain fart right now. The file extension. extension. Uh, so it. It hides the fact that it actually ends in .exe in this case. It's just the file name is DHL shipping notification, blah, 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 comma, PDF. So if you were to just yeah. quickly glance at it, you would say, oh, it's a PDF. It's got a PDF icon. It looks like it ends in PDF. And if you don't see that's a comma, not a period, you might actually open it, which I would say you should never open an unsolicited PDF regardless. But in this case, it's not uh, a PDF. In this case, you shouldn't have even unzipped yeah. the notification, let alone open it. Because a zip is often a giveaway that there's a reason they're trying. PDFs are usually pretty small and have their own compression. So if you get a zip and it's not really a, a, a huge file, they're probably trying to get past security. Exactly. Um, in this case, if you were to accidentally launch it or unknowingly launch it, it launches a, a beacon to call out to a remote server and ultimately it downloaded a ransomware variant called Nibiru. Um, so bad news bears these if you are, were to fall for that. This fish. is it's interesting that this still works though and reaches so high because these are old tricks. I mean, yeah. they're smart tricks. The fact that you know a lot of people, if you're a Windows person, you can change the default icon. I mean, you can make the icon for an executable anything if you know how to right click and go to the properties of those those programs. And the whole knowing that Windows doesn't show extensions by default and simple things like a comma can trick, it, it's stuff that's been going on for ages. And yet here it is still on one of our top lists. Exactly. And that's unfortunately because it works. Like we are security professionals. I'm willing to bet that most people listening to this right now are at least technology professionals or at least have some inclination to technology. And we know, okay, if you get a unsolicited zip file, uh, probably don't open that. If you do open that and it's got like a PDF in it, again, unsolicited, probably don't open that. But I mean, we are the people that do recognize that. And there's a massive swath of users out there that don't recognize that, which is why it works. Um, so moving on from the malware, again, we go into much more detail with some additional looks and additional threats that we highlight in the report itself. But for time's sake, uh, let's move on to the network attack section. And so like Corey uh, mentioned at the start of this, network attacks are detections by our intrusion prevention service engine running on the Firebox. Um, and it is signature-based. There's signatures to catch basically exploits against any network-connected application or service. Uh, things like attacks against clients, like web browser exploits, things like attacks against different network-connected services, SQL injection, cross-site scripting, specific applications, as you'll see. Um, basically anything that if it can be detected over a network connection with some signature, uh, we try and catch it with the service. And like the malware section, there's actually some an interesting takeaway from the, the raw just overview itself. And that's that even though we saw that pretty 
marked uh, decrease in appliances reporting into the feed, uh, we still had a 21% increase quarter over quarter in raw network attack detections. It was up over 4 million for the first time since 2018, basically. And when you take into account the drop in reporting appliances, the detections per appliance went up to 113 per box for per the quarter, uh, which was up from the 77. 47. Yeah, I think so, it's a 47 percent increase. Yeah. And as I, th I think you might have heard me say, through the pandemic and before, IPS was going up, so we we expected to increase, but the fact that it went up such a big amount while boxes were dropping, you know how I mentioned that a trend line. This is a kind of a big bump up in the trend line. It seems like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes to the individual threats in network attacks, um, we if you've listened to us talk about this previously, you know that like the top 10 tends to say stay pretty steady, largely because we believe it's all a bunch of automated tools out there that are attempting to just automatically find vulnerable hosts and exploit them. Um, but we actually had a couple of new ones this quarter. Uh, one of the new ones was, I, I say new very loosely here, uh, one of the most widespread threats, and I think it actually showed new, up the New, new to the top 10, but not necessarily a new attack. <laughs> yeah, as we're hinting at, uh, one of these vulnerabilities that uh, showed up pretty high up on both lists was a signature matching a 2013 vulnerability in Real Network's Real Player. Uh, Real Player? Yeah. That must be really new, Mark. I've never heard of it. Does anyone use Real Player? <laughs> I mean, okay. I, I'm honestly I know amazed every time is, I find out that they're still a company because I haven't I know. heard of them in like a decade. They still release new versions. But they've got a pretty Who? dang nice campus like within walking distance from WatchGuard HQ Who is in Seattle. Using them? I guess um, they're like IBM. No one thinks of them, but they're still huge. Yeah, I guess so I've talked to one of our coworkers, uh, Ben Broback, who's been on here at least a few times. And he knows some people that work there. And I guess it's basically it boils down to they do a lot of CDN work for media distribution for different like entertainment and sports services and stuff, which is like it makes sense. That's the bread and butter. It's what they're good at. Uh, but anyways, so beyond Real Networks, the company, this vulnerability was in a a file uh, handling of a file type that has not been supported since 2014. So it's interesting seeing this show up in volume from basically exploit attempts against WatchGuard customer networks, which leads me to believe it's not, it has to be an automated tool that just because of how easy this specific vulnerability is to exploit, it makes sense to just include it as a quick module if you're going to have something going along trying to automatically exploit stuff, just because it's quick, it's easy. If they happen to have this super old software, cool, you win. If not, not, not much lost in the case of the attacker here. Um, I will say, it, it, by the way, it's probably an automated tool no matter what, but I do think this one was in our, our top 10 by volume, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean it touched a lot of boxes. It, it, it could be that maybe an attacker found someone that, you know, was was using real player and tried this old vulnerability repeatedly against just a few boxes because it did not show up in our most widespread uh, it Netflix did actually attacks. it was oh, did it number one in the most widespread so the signature name oh itself, wait yeah real player is not in the name it's yeah. the file invalid xml exactly version. and it primarily yeah. targeted uh, i guess south american it looks like basically latin language oh no it's a yeah. pretty good mix brazil spain brazil italy. spain and italy so um, no, at least language similarities between them, but still 
uh, not the normal US, Canada, and one other that we typically see in the most widespread malware. So interesting that it primarily hit those uh, regions. But yeah, it's, I don't know, it's weird seeing it in there. I can't imagine they had a lot of success with this one, um, but might as well add it to a tool if you've got something in there already just trying to fingerprint and exploit a thousand different flaws. Um, beyond that, though, in the top 10, there was actually another new threat that is much more interesting in that it's actually really recent, at least comparatively to what we tri uh, traditionally see in this list. Uh, it was for CVE 2020-1300, so just last year, uh, and a vulnerability in the Windows CAB file parsing. So CAB files are basically an archive format that Windows uses for various means. Uh, it includes, you know, typical uh, compression you'd see from an archive format, but also authentication through the form of embedded certificates in it. Um, and this particular flaw was a directory traversal vulnerability in it that could effectively allow someone that convinces someone into opening one of these CAB files. It would let that attacker to write a file anywhere they want on that affected system by exploiting this vulnerability. Um, Interesting seeing that one show up. This one I feel like is more of a practical, like could actually work attack in that it's recent. And oh yeah, as it's know, funny because it's a neat it's a neat mix of a recent vulnerability that makes cabs relevant again, but an old technique. Like uh, I feel like I haven't seen cab file attacks for a long time, but back in the day, malicious cab files, even in email, was was very common. I mean. You can tell by the archive for basically the format of the file is one that could be easily exploited. So yeah, it's new as far as the vulnerability that allows us to work again. And yet cabs have been malicious files in the past. So it kind of harkens to the past as far as the general technique. Yep, exactly. So interesting. I, I was excited. I mean, I know I shouldn't be excited about seeing attacks anywhere, but I was excited to see that show up in the list just because it was new and fresh and recent and still really applicable and something that you should watch out for. Luckily, the fix is yeah. easy. Patch your windows with something released in the last year and you're safe yeah. from this specific one. But it's funny that we're so used to the old stuff in raw volume <laughs> that seeing something even a year old feels exactly. Um, in the last bit of the network attack section, we actually tracked uh, Hafnium, or I guess specifically it's the proxy, proxy logon log vulnerabilities, what is what Hafnium they're called, but they the were group. exploited originally by the Hafnium threat actors based out of China. Um, that whole event, the Windows Exchange server issues, happened really in the last few weeks of the quarter. Uh, but even in just the last week, basically, uh, we were able to track detections go from 40 and 20 or so, depending on the day, up to the hundreds, pretty close to the thousands of detections on um, appliances out there. Again, it's only literally a week of tracking because it was right at the end, but it was a 1600% increase from the, the first day we had the signature and we saw some hits to 1600% increase to 700 and something by, by a week later. Which makes sense. Like, uh, kind of hinting at it, our top security incident for this quarter was talking about the proxy log on attacks. And you'll see in that section that it's actually pretty dang easy to exploit these vulnerabilities on a unpatched system, which is why it caused such a hubbub uh, when they were disclosed. Like, I remember seeing the news on the second day of like security experts basically saying, if you have not patched by now, consider yourself too late and already impacted by this. Like if your exchange server is exposed by the way, to the internet, I, I like think we literally said that on the podcast yeah. at one point. <laughs> yeah. Basically, if your exchange server is expo was exposed to the internet, as it probably is as an email server with Outlook web access, 
it's too late if you didn't get it in the first day or so. Like it caused some pretty drastic responses from the FBI even uh, going in and manually removing one of the web shells that got dropped on some vulnerable systems. Like this was a big attack. And so it was interesting seeing the data backing it up of pretty quickly skyrocketing and detections as other people uh, attempted to exploit it against potentially exposed hosts out there. I think you might have had a few days after the patch because this started, the zero day was by state-sponsored allegedly threat actors who probably were very a little limiting in who they targeted. But as soon as Microsoft released the post, as you said, you know, every threat actor out there reversed this issue. And when those folks started doing it, they started exploiting it en masse, you know, unlike a state-sponsored attacker who might have specific targets, they... They didn't give a darn. They were hijacking whoever they could. I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but was this not the incident that we talked about on the podcast back in March where Microsoft actually took down proof of concept code from GitHub, uh, which Microsoft uh, yes. owned GitHub uh, because they basically said it's too soon. We don't want this out there. Yep. <laughs> so yep. pretty serious issue. Um, let's move on for time's sake now to the last section of the Firebox feed which is where we look at the DNS firewalling service, DNS watch and detections from that one. Uh, so this service was, is designed to basically uh, neuter malicious domains by sending them and uh, connections to them and said to a safe black hole. Uh, it's great for phishing protection, where if your user clicks on a malicious link, then instead of going to the bad spot, they go to a black hole. It also, as you'll see, picks up a lot of botnet command and control connections as well. Uh, where instead of that command and control connection going somewhere bad, we were able to send it to the black hole too. And for the quarter, uh, we actually had a pretty massive increase in malicious detections through the service. It was up to over 5 million block connections for the quarter, um, which I think is the highest we have seen it so far. Um, pretty big increase. Uh, we kind of chalked yeah, that I, up to... I, I, it was huge. <laughs> yeah, we kind of chalked that about up to uh, some of the user base that uses the service and people returning to those office, like offices and specifically schools and colleges where there's now people, again, behind the perimeter where it's easy to deploy this en masse um, and a lot of suspicious clicks and things like that tend to happen. And it, it I think according to our researcher here, phishing campaigns just increased which of course increases the links out there yep exactly um so in the report we bucket uh we detect actually in the service quite a few ranges of different types of malicious domains but in the report we look at just three of those uh which we bucket as compromised websites so these are potentially legitimate websites that have been compromised by a threat actor to host something malicious uh, we've got malware domains which are just straight up bad websites involved some way in malware distribution or malware command and control. And then phishing domains. So domains, as you might guess, that are involved in phishing campaigns against victims. Um, and when it comes to the compromised domains, there were, I think, three brand new ones for the quarter. Um, one that was distributing a crypto miner that we added back in November of 2020. Uh, one distributing the goo loader dropper. And then another that was associated with adult website link spam. So basically just adware at that point. And I guess crypto miners have been a trend that we've seen continue going up. If you've been, I guess, alive and had the news on for the last year, you've probably noticed cryptocurrency has had a very volatile year of skyrocketing and now basically plummeting again. And really, anytime cryptocurrency gains popularity, we tend to see a surge in crypto miners. But even if it 
starts going back down, like these crypto miners don't go away. It's basically just free money for cyber criminals to. Uh, they shouldn't. The the volatility we see goes up just as often as it goes. You know, one month we're talking about how it's crashed horribly, but two months later, who knows? Seems like a sound investment, right? I don't know if I would say it's a sound investment, but as far as free money for malware actors, you know, I, I would definitely put some of my botnet towards mining. You hear Might that? Might as well kill the world by eating up energy and, and increasing climate change, making it come faster. Corey hates green trees and he makes sure his botnet mines cryptocurrency is what I got out of that one. There you go. <laughs> um, moving on to the malware domains, though. Um, there were just, I think, two new ones in that one. Uh, one was the site that we added actually quite some time ago, a few years ago, that was found hosting the Cerberus Banking Trojan, which has been around for quite some time, uh, but still is making its rounds. And we still had 13,000 detections for the quarter for this specific domain. Uh, the next one was a command and control server involved in the Lemon Duck crypto miner, which, man, that's a fun name, um, where the infrastructure for this one was actually shut down in 2020 but we still continue, continued seeing detections from infected hosts. And I know we've talked about this a few times, but it shows that just because you know Microsoft or the Justice Department or whoever is able to go and shut down infrastructure for botnet command and controls, doesn't mean the infections are cleaned up. Like we've seen TalkNoWall show up in some of these lists for multiple quarters in a row, and that was from the VPN filter malware from 2019 that got cleaned up pretty dang quickly. It's kind of funny to me. I, I guess this is more about cleanliness because the truth is if the good guys have shut down the command and control, the infection is probably quote unquote benign. By the way, it could still be doing things that you don't want. But the fact that there's computers out there that sit infected beaconing home for a year later, even when the threat actor isn't around to listen. It, it in terms of cracks me up a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> in terms of a crypto miner like Lemon Duck, even if it's like a botnet sitting there not being able to call home, like it's yeah, really it's not going to do anything. Bad. But a crypto miner yeah. is still going to be oh, siphoning yeah. off your resources, so it is bad. For and sure, we do yeah. try and proactively reach out to uh, organizations as we see these detections come in. But like, I mean, I get it. People are busy; they don't always get to check their freshly opened tickets, and they might not notice that we say, "Hey, by the way, it looks like you got a lemon duck infection on one of your hosts. You might want to go clean that up." Uh, I would say this is a great example of why you should be like have a regular uh, review of your security logs and security event logs, like because this would show up as a blocked threat in whatever visibility platform you're using if you're inspecting these DNS alerts, basically. And you would be able to then go find that host and then clean up the infection, which in the case of, again, a neutered botnet, I mean, you probably have some leeway to do that. But with a crypto miner, you definitely want to get that off of your host so you can free up the resources it's using. Um, the final category was top phishing domains where we actually had five new threats show up, which is pretty typical. We, this tends to be the one with the most turnover as phishing campaigns get killed and started back up under a new name. Um, of the five editions, there was yet another SharePoint subdomain hosting a fake invoice. I think every single cord we've had at least one, usually two or three SharePoint subdomains show up in this list. Uh, same with Firebase app. There was a subdomain of that that showed up that had a fish targeting Citibank users. Both of these being cloud hosting services, Firebase from Google, SharePoint from Amazon or Amazon from Microsoft. Uh, where anyone, including a bad guy in this case, can go register an account 
with the bad guys, probably with stolen identity information. Uh, and then using that account, host whatever they want. In this case, a fish website, which they get a subdomain off of this legitimate domain and basically piggyback off of their reputation past a lot of services. Uh, not ours, but quite a few other ones potentially. Um, outside of those two, there was a domain that popped up. Uh, oh man, what the heck was it called? Specialbreaking.news. Again, don't go to these domains. They're malicious. Uh, but this one I thought was kind of fun where it's designed to help people evade region blocking on videos. Basically, they say if you want to get to, I don't know, watch a European soccer game or something. You, you don't need a VPN. Just come to our site. Yeah. Uh, but it prompts users to sign into an account, which could potentially give up credentials. It also prompts them to enable notifications for the web page, which basically gives the page control over spamming the crap out of your browser with pop-ups everywhere, even when it's not in focus. Um, it basically just an all-around gross site that showed up on the list. Uh, we had a another domain associated with a Microsoft 365 phishing campaign, which, I mean, I would say probably half of these domains in some way or form typically host some form of Microsoft Fish. By the way, it, it feels like uh, Office 365 my usage is huge. I mean, why would you try to fish? Other than Gmail and Office, there's almost no other thing you would care to fish. What are you saying? People I mean, aren't I, fishing Apple Mail or whatever the heck theirs is? <laughs> Does SendMail, the Linux server, actually have a web-based client? What's it called? I have no idea. I haven't seen anyone once it. Uh, target a send mail web-based uh, OWA, whatever they call it. Yeah. Uh, the last interesting one was actually a fish uh, that was spoofing the Royal Mail, I believe of uh, this one would have been the United Kingdom. Yeah, it's in pounds. So Royal UK Royal Mail, where the fish itself says you've got a package waiting for delivery, but you have to pay a two pound 99 uh, pence shipping fee before we'll release it to you. The page has a form to enter your information, including your credit card number, in order to pay this fee, which, as you might guess, most likely does not go to the actual Royal Mail. It goes off to a threat actor in that case. Hopefully people didn't fall for this, but enough people actually I wonder if that's it. common. I mean, uh, I could see, I know some, some other countries have custom fees that we don't have, so... I haven't lived in the UK yet. I wonder if that's like a, I wonder if that is effective because there is sometimes extra mail fees for customs. Or well, something. I know in uh in the US, like with our postal service, uh, they tend to still deliver the package. You just get one of those cash on delivery slips on the top of it where yeah. they will either like if it's a large amount, they'll come and knock on your door and ask for it. If it's a small amount, your postman typically takes care of it. Yeah. Um, but there were still 650 detections for the specific one, which meant 650 people clicked on this link and came to this site. Doesn't mean they filled out the form, but still, like, I would love to see the email that spawned this one to figure out how believable that was. Because when you look at the screenshot we include in the report itself, it's a pretty bare bones site. Yeah. But I mean, that said, you know, we're professionals, at least I pretend to be. Uh, this looks obvious to us, but it's not necessarily obvious. Like if my grandmother were to click on the link and see, oh, I feel so bad. I, I go to my grandma too, but I feel so bad for grandmas. I'm sure there's a freaking tech grandma out there that coded Skyrim and is probably mad every time <laughs> we say that. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, it's definitely not my grandmother. I love her to death, but she is the most technical and net person that I know. Same with my grandma. I hate to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. 
takeaways from the DNS section, though, like phishing attacks are still out there. We're still seeing plenty of ones that are spoofing or not spoofing, abusing cloud hosting services with their own subdomains. So really, like hovering over the link is no longer enough to make a conclusion on whether something is good or bad. It's a factor in it, uh, but it's not enough. And you still need to treat these phishing messages with skepticism until proven otherwise, basically. Um, so the final section, man, we've been talking for a while. Uh, the final section of the report is the top security incident where we highlight the the biggest event or incident or hack or news topic from the quarter. And it felt pretty easy for this one as well. Like SolarWinds for Q4 was a gimme. And it felt like proxy logon for Q1 of this year was another gimme, even though it occurred pretty late. And so... It's tough to do it justice on a podcast format. So I'll say just check out the report um, where we do a in-depth review of two of the main vulnerabilities of the four that were a part of this proxy logon flaw. Uh, the first I think one, it's a waste to describe on a podcast, but I think you're right. I mean, what Mark did excellent in this section is if you ever really, this is a type of vul vulnerability that even a non-coder there's enough that Mark wrote in this report where if you look at the actual queries, you will really get how this works in, in some of the, the URL and parameters that are shared. So uh, like you said, it's really hard to describe in a podcast, so I don't think we should even try. But if you're curious how the that exploit worked in particular, it was really well you know, written up, Mark. I think you did a great job. Thank you. I and thought you'll see you'll see what the right kind of request might be and how how these bad guys are adjusting things to get past some of the to, to basically exploit some of the vulnerabilities that were found. Yeah, the first one that I highlighted in there was CVE 2021-26855, which was basically the the initiator for this, where an attacker could take a unauthenticated connection and gain administrative access. And I liked it from a analysis standpoint in that it is the perfect example of a server-side request forgery vulnerability, basically abusing some system's architecture and how it communicates with itself internally to launch an attack. In this case, basically trick the server into authenticating as itself, which then using that elevated access, you could abuse either of the three following vulnerabilities like one of the uh, arbitrary file write ones that we that I also highlighted in the report here as well. Um, interesting seeing how they work. And like Corey said, like the flaws themselves, one of the reasons they gained such popularity by threat actors is because I, I mean, I'm going to say it's trivial to exploit. It's pretty dang easy on an unpatched system to exploit these flaws, which also means it's pretty easy to follow along and understand exactly how they're, yeah. they work in the background. Unlike a really technical buffer overflow or a heap overflow vulnerability where you need to start understanding assembly and where things are in the stack, this is something that anyone that has even a, a modicum of web knowledge, little bit of coding, it could easily follow along with. Exactly. Um, which is why it was such a big security incident when it came out and for several months that followed as well. Um, so... I guess for time's sake, let's hop to like some our key takeaways from the report. Maybe just the final conclusions that we had towards the end of it. Um, Corey, do you want to take the first one, maybe? Oh, absolutely, of course. Why not? Yeah. So I, I think one of I really two of them. If it, just to speed up, uh, 
we talked a lot about the zero day malware. I mean, it's kind of a, a boring takeaway because we've said it so often, but signature based detection is no longer enough. So really what it comes down to is we heavily recommend multiple layers of malware defense. Now the first multiple layers is network and endpoint, right? They, you can detect malware before it even hits endpoints, and that's good. There's a lot of things we already mentioned, like droppers and stagers and loaders that you can catch and might even be easier to catch on the network level before the really nasty stuff is, is downloaded as a secondary payload. So one way to lay on malware detection is using both network-based malware detection and endpoint-based malware detection together when you can now, obviously, there's times you're going to be out of the office and may not have the control of network security. So the other tip is we do most malware protection right now for remote work should be focused on the endpoint. And there you need to think about the types of malware detection. You know, nowadays, it's not just signatures. There's all kinds of different types. We, we generically, from a network level, tell you what we do with signature-based, machine learning-based, and behavioral-based, but those same concepts exist on the endpoint, too. A lot of them locally are using a lot of signatures to quickly catch things, but then whether it's cloud-assisted or a local model, they often use machine learning to find additional things within seconds. They sometimes uh, send to a behavioral sandbox if they can't figure it out right away. So when you're looking at your endpoint or network malware protection, make sure that it has multiple ways to detect and lean towards the proactive techniques. It's not bad that some AV still uses signatures, but that should not be what the, whether it's network or endpoint based, you really want to lean towards the, the techniques, largely machine learning and behavioral based detection that can really catch malware without having to wait for an analyst to catch up with the signature. And I'll say like this is especially important if you're one of those that don't do HTTPS inspection at the perimeter because then you really are relying on your endpoint protection and potentially other things like for command and control blocking. But even then, like you're relying on your endpoint protection to stop that malware from executing at that point in time, uh, which is why you need robust endpoint protection. Yeah, and I'll pile onto this. We kind of gave this as a separate tip, but it's really in the layered malware section or it's really in the same kind of theme. On the endpoint, there's a type of malware protection that I don't think everyone has and they need. We talk a lot about fileless or living off the land attacks. You know, the, the XML JS loader that we talked about that launched PowerShell. The reason it does that is PowerShell allows a way for bad guys to do a lot of malicious stuff without necessarily needing the file on the computer once that XML gets parsed badly. So you need something not only to prevent malware from hitting the endpoint or from running on the endpoint. But the truth is there's a type of attack where it might actually get to a point it runs and you want some technology that's going to be able to quickly figure that out as it's running and remediate it in some way. And what I'm getting to is nowadays malware protection consists of endpoint protection that analysts call EPP. That's kind of the pre-execution malware prevention. Think of it as stuff that we've already talked about, trying not to get the file or malware to even run on your computer. But then there's something called endpoint detection and response or EDR, which is really post-execution detection in many cases. It's not necessarily 
You know, it, it leans on the EPP to just not let malware run, but it's the last kind of line of defense that's trying to catch the malware that does make it on your computer in some form or fashion and can really start to identify the, the process tricks, the memory injection, the, the different things that living off the land attacks or fileless malware uses. So the final layer when you're talking about the endpoint Look at a next generation EPP suite because they tend to combine EDR, endpoint detection and response, with the actual preventative malware stuff as well. Yeah, great tip. And the last big takeaway we have from the report is basically prepare to deploy a hybrid workforce with zero trust. Like zero trust is a, a big uh, word that's being thrown around now from analysts, but it actually it is a an architecture that we expect to see most organizations move to, especially with this hybrid workforce. And to give you like a real quick rundown on like how Zero Trust differs from historical looks at network security and security as the whole, like the old model was basically if something's internal, like authenticated through a VPN or physically on the internal network, you give it a little bit more trust than something external. If it's inside, then that means it had to have passed some form of authentication, whether like physical authentication in the building or uh technical authentication through a VPN in order to get there. So it can probably be trusted to behave or at least not to be straight up malicious. But in reality, that just means that if an attacker is able to get internal to your network, they can just freely move laterally to whatever system they want behind the perimeter. It's not enough east-west detection. Gray, gray beards like me call this the Tootsie Pop syndrome. You, you have this hard, hard shell exterior, which is great, but you have this crunch and softy interior. And if there's one tiny hole that gets past that hard shell, I can I, I can suck out the entire soft interior. And really the point of zero trust is even your trusted users shouldn't necessarily have access to this entire soft and chewy interior. Exactly. And so that means like both just basically re-architecting how your network looks instead of looking at as a whole in the network, identifying what your critical data and services and infrastructure is, and then combining that with a strong identity. So figuring out who users are, what devices are tied to those users, and then restricting access to those special services. That boils down to typically network segmentation, stronger network segmentation than you've probably been doing, but then the good identity access control behind that to still enable the legitimate access. Like the easiest solution is, uh, disconnect everything from your network and uh, just turn off all the power. But obviously that isn't the the best solution when it comes to security. You still have to have that availability portion of security when it's needed. The, the funny thing about this is it's the, the principle is old. You know, one of the core principles of security is least privilege principle. But the thing is we haven't, we, we provide the least privilege principle to external people but we haven't been good at, at applying the least privileged principle to our own employees. An accountant doesn't need access to every server on the network. They only need access to the, the monetary servers or the, you know, the, the accounting service. It's not the source code. So it, there are technologies. We talk about it being network-based because it can be network and endpoint-based, but there's some that is just at an application level to make sure to apply least privilege. Yep. But and getting to one of the zero trusts, I mean, one of the key takeaways here is now you're going to have this type of employee that 
they're they're still sometimes a remote user. They have an endpoint at home. Hopefully that endpoint is very well protected, but they're bringing it back and forth to the office. And while their endpoint is protected, you got to assume at home they're less protective. So they're, they are more prone to infections because they're relying only on endpoint protection at home, not the network protection. So any advice, Mark, for what about how do you prepare for that user that is you know not just remote all the time and only coming back to the office once a quarter, but going back and forth? Yeah, it's easy. You uh, tell them to turn on the firewall on their Netgear router at home and all their problems are solved. <laughs> Of course, because network routers are, are really strong. Yeah. That's why we sell our tabletops. No, really, again, it boils down to <laughs> network segmentation. Like the easiest solution for this problem would be have separate networks for always in the office endpoints and then these mobile endpoints as well. And that doesn't mean completely blocking them off from the resources they need. It just means additional protections and maybe some health checks when they first connect so that if there is an existing infection or just some funky business detected, you limit the blast radius of what that's able to reach uh, before you're able to respond to it. And the other benefit of the segmentation is even though you must allow them to some of the trusted stuff, when you're allowing the stuff, because it's over a gateway, suddenly all our services apply, IPS and malware inspection. So even when they're allowed to access trusted net resources at the office, they will get that that it's not east-west. In this case, we're putting a gateway between it by segmenting it, but you get that benefit of getting it through IPS2 just in case they, they have become a, a un, unexpected malicious actor without knowing it. Yeah, and the last bit of zero trust really also boils down to visibility and monitoring too because you want to make sure that this the traffic you do allow, uh, you still have visibility into it so that you can detect and respond to threats quickly if they are able to evade some of your security services. So good takeaways from this quarter, some really interesting trends that we highlighted throughout it, like seeing evasive malware jump up that high in just one quarter, still on the tail end of a pandemic, was uh, surprising to see, uh, but still in line with basically our expectations over the long term. It just came a heck of a lot quicker than we thought it would. Um, if you want to see the full report, it's watchguard.com slash security report. And we'll toss a link in the description of this episode as well. Um, or you, or you can go to secplicity.org. And if you check out our threat landscape page, we sometimes put links within that page too. Yep. It will be uh, updated there by the time you listen to this episode. Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.